Hello, I'm TJ Barczyk. And I'm Casey Brazil. And this is Work Friends. Work Friends is a podcast about business, entrepreneurship, and work. So normally we do two topics, uh, end with some quick hits. I want to start off with my first topic today, and that's work-life balance. We all try to find an answer to this in different kind of ways, unless you're working a line job or something that, you know, there's no way you can, you know, stay late on or work extra on or work from home. Uh, You know, there's incentive to, you know, stay late, whether that's social pressure or, you know, trying to gain success or whatever it is, or, you know, stay late, work from home, you know, help people in the office, all those sort of things. So I want to kind of start off with you. Are there any certain rules? You obviously are working from home, you know, self-motivated quite a bit, but are there certain rules that, you know, I don't work after a certain time, or is there certain triggers for you that you've helped create for yourself? It's funny to me that we haven't done this yet, because it's like the thing that everyone (laughs) always talks about. I wish I could tell you that, like, the solution to work-life balance is you've got to keep your Saturdays free or always leave by X time. I really... I really don't have too many strategies on this. When it's hitting the fan and there's really things that just have to get done, you stay. You do them, <laughs> you know? And I think it's good to create practices and set kind of expectations about this is when I'm generally in the office, you want to be a creature of habit, things like that, to the extent that you can. I don't mean to say when I say that I don't have a practice around it I don't mean to say that there's not a good practice around this, but I don't know what it is. Like, I don't have any kind of rule that says, you know, always cap your week at 60 hours. Or if you've worked, if you've been overworked a couple of weeks and you're really feeling it, do this. You know, uh, all I can say is kind of case by case, you, you, you have to seriously evaluate what your responsibilities are and what the commitment is that's going to come with them. But I, I very rarely have said, oh, I don't want this assignment. Or sure. like, I, I think it's, it's very much my uh, habit and I think kind of more or less expected of you to put your hand up. And yeah, I would absolutely. imagine that you are more or less the same. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and obviously, you know, work-life balance is different for different people. Uh, you are married. I am not. I have a kid. You do not, right? So these are different yep. kind of expectations um, that kind of are put on us. Uh, and different pieces like that. And, you know, whether you have family living in that town or whether you have, uh, you know, a, a dynamic social network that, you know, you're, you you really enjoy going out, uh, you know, multiple times a week or if you don't or if you're part of a bowling league or whatever, you know, the different uh, social pieces that you look forward to. It's just kind of that priority. So, um, yeah, and obviously, you know, especially in the entrepreneurship world, uh, a lot of people have to make rules, right? Because they are self-motivated, yeah. right? It's, e- it's easier to kind of fall into traps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear a lot of the, uh, the you know, super entrepreneurs, the venture capital guys saying like, hey, like I am, I avoid my family pretty much Monday through Friday and then I dedicate 100%. I turn off my phone mm-hmm. Saturday, Sunday or, mm-hmm. you know, I turn off my phone at certain times or I yeah. do certain things like that. Um, I've started, it's weird to say, scheduling time with my son because I know... If I don't, it's easy to kind of go home, fall into the trap of like, let's just watch a movie or something like that, or mm-hmm. and I'll have my phone out, or I'll be kind of multitasking. So in an effort to uh, make the most of that time, you know, I've scheduled out, you know, you know, one to two hour blocks depending on what it is, and it's it's not dependent. Like you said, if something comes up, we can reschedule. But it's like, hey, two hour block of time. What we do during that time can change, but maybe it's going to the park, maybe yeah. it's 
reading books, maybe whatever it may be. That makes all the sense in the world to me. I think that the more you schedule stuff, the more you lean into your calendar, the less stressful it is to like think about, well, what, what am I supposed to be doing right now? The less you have guilt of, oh, I should be at home or, oh, I should be at work. You know, if it says on the calendar, you do it. Uh, listening to the CGP Grey podcast, he gets down to the point where he will schedule his sleep. Like he puts the hours of his sleep <laughs> into his schedule. That I wouldn't go that far and I never, I rarely do put social things unless it's something like, and this isn't really social, like some things where I do it with other people and I, it has to be scheduled in advance, like band practice or a show or, you know, something like that. But uh, I don't do that. I don't have anything like scheduling time with my son because <laughs> I don't have a son. But to me, it's very reasonable. Yeah, it, it's, it's something, you know, I, I've found myself doing it more, just putting things in my calendar, and I, I'm not great at sticking to them. Um, and I don't, I don't think I want to be, right? It's it's more about, for me, it's, it's about when I'm doing those things, I'm not doing other things. It's mm -hmm. so like I'm a... Uh, you know, I, I whatever multitask everything. Even at work, I'm usually doing two, three projects at once. I'm not. I'm not one of those people who, like I have to finish this before mm -hmm. I do something else. Mm -hmm. um, and that gets in the way of kind of the, the the personal stuff, right? So if I am, you know, at the park with my son, I'm like oh, I can I can answer these emails. He's playing. It's fine. But like, there's part of me that wants to be I don't know, fully committed. So I can I can be like, no, this is this is that time for this. Yeah. Uh, let me let me fully fully engage in this activity, whatever it may be. Uh, it's made those activities more fulfilling. Um, I think there's a bit of a memory trick involved in it, right? If you go to the park every day, those those parks are not those park trips don't become memorable. Whereas if like mm -hmm. I say today we are going to I don't know pretend we're superheroes and we're gonna act out the entire Captain America Civil War movie at the park. It, it creates a weird memory trick for not only for my son, obviously, because he looks back at those a little more fondly, but for me, and it makes me, uh, whether it's true or not, feel like I'm more engaged uh, in those I bet activities. you did that, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it, like, but that's the point, is that going into these activities with, here's what we're doing today, and maybe we don't stick to it, but, like, that's, it's almost cultivating memories. It's, it's a weird way to think about it, but, like... Uh, more targeted activities. I'm, I'm. He's super into like making movies. So like we're recording things, and I'm kind of editing him, quick editing. He's, mm. he's having kind of weird little like, uh, scripted, half scripted movies that we've made out of just like playing at the park and stuff like that. It's funny now that you say that. It's I remember doing things like this with my dad. Like I remember, uh, and my dad was a, totally still is one of those guys who's just working all the time, but. I remember us scheduling specific activities like today we will play Monopoly and me being like an eight-year-old thinking like, well, but in two days, <laughs> it's Monopoly Day. And that being like something that I was excited about. One thing I would say about work-life balance that just makes sense, and it's, uh, it's something that you're going to learn eventually if you don't naturally do it, is work at work as best you can to put things to, be put things to bed and then really, when you're out of work, really try and be there and engage in that. So try and fully shift into whatever you're doing. So one of my first real jobs was as a teacher. 
and I could kind of be grading things while watching TV, while talking with the, my housemates and grade over a three hour period. But I had a much better time in my life and in my job when I said, nope, I'm going to sit down here. I'm going to grade all these papers. And then I have my social stuff. Like uh, multitasking is great, but it's nicer when the multitasking is all of the same flavor. You know, I'd rather multitask two work things or two fun things than half work, half fun. Yeah, and obviously the the you know the cell phone with internet and email capabilities has has changed this dynamic immensely, right? Oh, yeah. So uh, our parents didn't, didn't have uh, quite this issue regardless of what their job was. So um, you know, I, I you know will tend to I'll have my phone on me all the times in case of emergencies or stuff. But do you have any tricks to um, you know, at dinner, not take it out, or at, you know, social events at the bar, not take it out? Because we all kind of, like, look poorly at those people that are like, hey, you, we're at dinner here. Keep those people going. are monsters. <laughs> those people are monsters. But uh, we do it. I bet you you do it. You never, never. You've never taken your phone out at a bar. You've never taken your phone out at, at a dinner. It is, I, I want to be a sweet and open-minded person, and I want the world to know that I look generously upon them, usually. But you do this so much more than me. Of course I do. I, I, am, I, I am not as susceptible to my phone. I think it may have to do with just like my personality. But when I, and I do get on my phone sometimes, but it's usually because I feel like I'm, I'm having trouble getting into whatever the thing is I should be getting into. Like the dinner or the whatever. But I, I definitely am not somebody who you're going to be texting, you're going to be talking to, and then see that I'm sending a text. That's fair. I'm definitely more of that. I think I'm also just a little more of, I don't know, ADD than you or whatever it is. But I'm, I'm easily bored by situations. Yeah. And uh, whether it's conscious or subconscious, it is a little bit of a trigger. Like, I don't, I, I don't care what you're talking about. or <laughs> I don't care what's going on here. Or I get it. And I, I get it, on. but like even like I said, like you know, I'll be playing a board game with my son or something, and like, you know, we're playing Puppyopoly or whatever yes. you know it may be, it's and like, very slow. and like I can, I can, I can, I can send an email while we're doing this. There's no reason for me to be a hundred percent engaged in Puppyopoly or hear him tell the same stories a thousand times, right? It's like You're there's seven. a little bit of I a, can take you to the house it's hard it's hard to be engaged in some of that stuff yeah. especially for a long period of time and I envy the people um, that can do that and it's it's uh, it's it's hard <laughs> yeah I think that I I more have trouble like if it's something that I don't want to do it's more likely to be at work I have more trouble being like just bite down and chug through this than when I'm with buddies in whatever situation because I love my social life. You know, <laughs> like I, I really I really dig into it. And I, you know, if I have friends that I don't like, I stop hanging out with them, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm usually pretty engaged. I, I feel like I'm, all the things I'm saying are very jerky, but I don't have a tip for it. No. I just, it, my phone holds very little uh, appeal to me most of the time. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's obviously because, like I said, uh, <laughs> not that I don't love hanging out with my kid. Some of the stuff just doesn't, some of the stuff just doesn't, like, I'm, I don't get super excited about Puppyopoly, right? Oh. Uh, 
I get super excited about. And I'm a dick. If, I'm a dry if I have no kid and I'm telling you, you should <laughs> love Monopoly with your son more. I understand. But, like, yeah, if I enjoy, like, when I go, you know, to the bar with my friends, it's a lot easier to be engaged. Or I'm playing, you know, a sport with my friends. You know, mm-hmm. it's much easier to be engaged because you're choosing to do that activity uh, versus, you know, an obligation or something like that. So it's different. Um for me, it, like a little bit in that. So let's, I'm trying to think of something for you. Like if you're at family dinner that you're not, you know, you didn't want to go to, but you feel obligated to go to, are you super engaged in those as well? Not necessarily, no. But I, I feel like if I, when I tune out, I go to the rich world of imagination more than I go to, like, what do my work emails say? Uh, not that I've never done that. I certainly do. And recently I've become totally addicted to Twitter. But that's another thing altogether. So... Besides the, the idea of one way to balance your work and life is to really be wherever you are and be as present as possible and get in the moment, what else works for you? I, this is something all humans wrestle with. You must have some thoughts about this. Yeah, well, I, I think, I think your, your point is, is interesting in that you, know, you enjoy your social life, so therefore you are more engaged and more present. Um, I, you talked about, you know, you have trouble at work sometimes and you're easily, you know, we'll, we'll default to Twitter or something like that. I've never, I mean, at jobs I've hated, yes, I've had that. But like my last few jobs, I've actually been, there's always something to do and there's always something to be going on. Um, so I haven't felt as much a uh, need for distraction or you never are like doing a task and you're like, this is taking twice as long as it should because I hate doing it. Yeah. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, if there's paperwork, you know, it takes those sort of issues, but, um, I'm not one of those people who checks Facebook at work or Twitter very often. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty engaged in that. It goes back to kind of, I think our to-do list conversation a few podcasts ago. I'm just like. Hey, like this it is, works. this is, yeah, if, if, you know, I have these things, this is the highest priority. I have to kind of get it done. Let's just sit down and get it done. And, you know, if I'm, if, you know, if I throw on a podcast or if I throw on music or whatever it is on my headphones and, you know, that's partially distracting or whatever sort of, you know, I'm watching, a, maybe I'm at home, I'm watching a movie while I'm doing it. I mean, that's fine. It might take me twice as long to do that activity, but if it's a painful activity, I know I'm, I know I'm making progress. Uh, if I'm taking a break to go do laundry every 10 minutes or whatever it may be what about you any any tips on that on the on the work side of work-life balance oh i mean i think it's the same tip right (laughs) like you need to drill into what where you are and what the task at hand is as best you can but i want to i want to let's let's broaden this right you you must there must be other thoughts that you have about like how to do a good work-life balance this is your topic. You were thinking about yeah. this. What well, are, what you sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, a big part of the why I brought it up is, is something that I spend a lot of my time thinking about, right? Because especially once you have a kid, you feel really guilty um, a lot of the time of if you're mm. – it's mostly in retrospect about, God, you know, we were doing something I really wasn't wasn't present or whatever it was. So it's, it's more guilt. Uh, I don't know if I have true tips or suggestions. Mm. I know what I've done to help alleviate guilt more than, yeah. more than anything. Uh, and I'm, I'm definitely, you know, always curious about whether, how other people, um, do, you know, dissuade that guilt piece. I'm trying to think of other, other, like I said, to-do lists, scheduling, being as present as possible, yeah. trying to get rid of my phone as much as possible. I've deleted both the Twitter and Facebook apps from my phone. Oh, I like that um, idea. Simply to make them more difficult to get to, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> 
making something more difficult to get to by it's two extra clicks of clicking on my web web browser and then typing in the word Facebook. But like it it it's a disincentive because that it, matters. Well, and it's also like a, it's a trigger thing for me. Is like if I go if I'm just you know dead in the mind scrolling trying to find a distraction i'm like where's my facebook app oh yeah i deleted it because i don't want to do it it's like a reminder of like that's this is why i deleted it right (laughs) this is the reason i got rid of it for these moments like this it makes all the sense in the world i it's like cory doctorow talks about if you want to lose weight you can't have oreos in your house right don't buy oreos and put them in your house so that later you'll have to fight that temptation He talks about that in terms of legislation and how to like legislate toward a better future. Like you don't want to leave these traps for for the society, but it it totally applies to any kind of distraction. Yeah, and and I'm you know I'm pretty career focused. Uh, you know I, I like I said always put your hand up and those sort of things. Um, what's what's trouble for me and the trap I fall into a lot is it's not about putting your hand up. It's about there's something else that could I could be doing. Let me just go work on it and at the expense of family, friends, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. And it, like I said, it, it, I haven't found an answer for it. So I'm curious if you have any opinions on this. Is that, uh, you know, there's always more you could do, especially when you're working from your house. You could be writing yes. more papers. You could be doing more research. You could be mm-hmm. doing these things. Uh, you can be writing right now. Right. So, I mean, what what are your triggers to to not do that? Is it is it boredom? Is it you know family showing up? Is it what what is what what makes you stop doing that? That's yeah. I I don't have a good answer for that either. I think you really you help yourself when you set priorities and goals and you say this is what I wish to achieve. You know, it's like. It's easier for me to think about fitness when I'm thinking like, oh, I want to be able to do 100 push-ups than it is for me to think in the abstract like I want to be more fit. And I think the same can be true if you're talking about balancing career and social goals. Like I (laughs) – this sounds nerdy, but it's true. I'll cop to it. Like when I was writing down things that I want to do, like – there's a is a big list of a bunch of career things and then on that list is you know build a new friend group cuz so many of my friends have moved out of town when you're 30 you you just shed friends you know cuz they get a job somewhere else they get married somewhere else they move to Milwaukee who knows right but uh kids <laughs> yeah yeah but uh so i i wrote that down and i made a concrete goal and i don't i don't know if that's something that everyone should do but that's something I did toward that end. That's interesting. So setting, I don't know, personal life goals or whatever. It's kind of like putting it on the calendar. Yeah, right? ab- absolutely. So yeah, we, I mean, we've, we've been talking about this for a while. We're kind of starting to, to circle a little bit, but we can kind of end, end, end on this is that, uh, and by all means, if people have uh, ideas, <laughs> email us, right? Work from podcast at gmail.com or post a you know, comment on the, on the, on the podcast itself, but uh, on, our, on iTunes. But yeah, I think, like I said, scheduling, prioritizing. Uh, and for me, um, every Sunday night, I have it in my schedule to like, actually kind of take a more of a meta look at it, to your point of, you know, we have our to-do list and we have our goals and these sort of things. But like, look back and say, like, what's working, what's not working? Take one of them and say, like, my goal for this week is, whether it's a work thing, right? Focus on that um, and not, not at the expense of other things. I think that's 
an interesting point. And it, it makes me think about just like postmortems in general and looking back on whether it's a project or whatever work thing and trying to suss out what are the learnings. That should be a topic in, in and of itself. Because I think it's something that everyone says they were they will do. And I, I've rarely been in work situations where any time was put into the kind of after action and that's dumb. <laughs> so transitioning to our second topic, I wanted to talk a little bit about timelines. The reason I thought of this was when we last spoke, we talked a little bit about what being a good manager is. And one thing that I kept coming back to was this idea of you need to know what you want. Because in order to manage someone and in order to get the best out of them, you need to know what you think the best is for them. So I thought, well, how do you do that? Because when we talked about it, you kind of had some pushbacks and you were like, well, that person kind of has to motivate themselves. You need to see what they bring. And I, I was kind of talking, trying to like think through in my head how how you get to that, especially for something as big as a person's job, a person's career. And I was just thinking about, it's all about taking big tasks and big things that you want to achieve and working back from them. In the same way we talked about to-do lists in the past of like working forward, here's all the stuff I have to get through and looking, working forward from the present day. I think it's so valuable and so important to think back from like a future accomplishment. You know, I want to write a book. I want to, I need to have a great account person on this. I need to, you know, I need to bring this admin person up to speed. But not just I need to bring them up to speed, but this is what they look like functioning at their top level. So that's a lot of preamble. I kind of want to get to a question. I guess the first question I would ask is, how often do you think backwards from an event instead of forward and what is the advantage disadvantage of that yeah i mean the simple answer is very rarely right i think i like to your point i don't think anyone is good at this and we all could be better um you know we talked about my uh my classic interview uh, answer of like talk about your biggest weakness my my like the way i talk about is i run really fast and i tend to not look you know, I tend to not do those postmortems and those sort of things. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing. But I've seen you, like, okay, so even on a smaller thing, if you have a sales meeting, right, you're working toward, it, or if you have a client that you need to land or you're trying to land, right, you you have these intermediate goals that you work backwards from, right? So if it's like we want product X to be in Walmart, then you know you need to have a meeting with that buyer. So you're f from a hypothetical date in the future kind of working backwards. Do you ever, for projects like that, especially if they're important, you know, especially if they're central to your role, do you ever, have you ever created like a document like that or use something like that? I mean, it, it, it has to be, because it's kind of a false dichotomy. Because we are humans continually are thinking forward into the future and thinking backwards to the present all the time. 
I just wanted to kind of frame this this way because I, I think it's, it's a tool that we forget is in our briefcase. So I, I, to make that into a question that you can actually answer, what are the kinds of projects you break down like this, you work backward from? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, sorry, I probably misunderstood a little bit earlier. But in terms of timelines specifically, I think a big part of it depends on uh, is it a team activity or not, first yeah. of all. Because uh, if it's team activity, I love kind of Gantt charts. Uh, we can yeah. we can post links to that. But the more people are involved, the, the more, more people are involved. It. Because the purpose of that is just a visualization of the process, right? And saying, you know, you're part of the process. You know, can't start until someone else's part of the process is done. So every day you are late pushes back everyone else's part of that process. So if you know we need a, a PowerPoint deck done by this date, and that is dependent on data you are getting from someone else or information you're getting from someone else, then they, you know, creating that deadline of they have to get it to you at least one day before it's due or whatever kind of, you know, however much time you need, um, gets a visualization and, and the accountability behind it that if they don't hit that deadline, it, it's, you know, putting strain on other people. Internally, I'm like, you know, I, you don't need as much of the visualization. A lot of people do. No. Um, I personally don't do that as much. But it is those reminders of, right, like, what do I have on the horizon using my, you know, to-do list piece of it? What do I have on the horizon? Uh, I have the due date column in there. And then if, you know, if it's a Walmart meeting a month from now, I know the deck is due two days before that. I know the information is due before that. I know I need to do, you know, testing or sampling or whatever it may be before that. So creating in the to-do list piece of it what the next step in those mini goals are, um, you know, and creating those due dates for that. And part that I struggle with, and I wonder if I can kind of throw this back at you, is, right, there's, there's less incentive to hit those mini deadlines because you're like, oh, you know, yeah. if, if I miss this one internally, I can just make it up tomorrow. Uh, do you have ways to reward, punish, or stay accountable to yourself uh, on those mini internal goals? I would start by agreeing. Everything incrementally it can be hard to have the discipline and see like, no, no, this is on the way to the bigger thing. I guess the only thing that I could say is, is really helpful is if you can break down something into a every day I get this done, which is not doable for all tasks, but for some it definitely is, then you can kind of cross it off on the calendar every day and it becomes a habit. It becomes something that doesn't actually take willpower. The example I would take is, uh, I've been thinking a lot about like writing longer projects. So books and stuff, right? If you, in the crudest sense, if you take a 400 page book that you want written and you have a year to write it, you gotta write a page and a third every day because that's how many days are in a year. But in projects like that, where there's no way to say, I'm going to do an all-nighter at the end, you, there's, there's just that thing of getting in the habit of doing it and just grinding on it. So uh, let's, let's take that at the, you know, the book writing example, right? What's, what's to prevent you from one morning being like, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to write three pages tomorrow. Is there, what, do you have any tips or uh, ways to prevent that? Short answer, nothing. Long answer, habit, right? If you, if you do it enough times, it's not like you think about it. It's just like, to me, infinitely harder to work out three days a week than to work out six days a week or every weekday or every day, right? To work out every other day is, is hard. It's even hard for me 
to do two different workouts on different days. Because it's like, no, no, this is what I've prepared myself to do. And it's easy to feel that in a physical sense, but if you have a big goal, especially in an unstructured environment, where it's not like, hey, we're pitching this new account, so creative's gotta be done by this time, and you gotta get it to the account person who's gonna pitch it and explain it to them, and it's gotta be to the designer at this time, and yada yada. When it's just you, uh, making those habits is invaluable. Yeah, I think I think the interesting piece of that is, is self-awareness, which I think is something people don't talk about enough. And one of the biggest interview questions that I always try to dig out of people is how aware of yourself are you? How much does, mm. do your opinions of yourself match the other people's opinions of yourself? Mm. Um, because knowing your capabilities and your limits, uh, we all tend to inflate our abilities and think yes. we're better than we are. And um, you know, we talked about this, you know, when I was writing papers in college, I knew how long it took me to write a page. I would procrastinate, you know, if it took me six hours to write an essay, I knew I would start it literally six hours probably before it was due. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not the best timeline writer at all, but I was really good at the self-awareness part because I knew, uh, I was never late on any of them. I never, you know, overestimated my abilities or underestimated my time and those sort of things. Um, but you do fall into weird traps where, you know, something weird would happen in the middle of that, that like, uh, okay, I'd not, you know, you don't give your time, yourself time to adjust if, um, you know, mistakes or, you know, things happen. Absolutely. I, the time, the things that timelines are best for are those things that are too daunting, right? Things that don't let you just seem like they're either impossible to do or you're worried about, you don't have self-confidence. And it's a way to kind of like, cut something down to size like i when someone showed me their plan their training plan for running a marathon i read it like three times because it was fascinating to me not because i have no intention of running a marathon i that doesn't seem like a fun thing to do but the idea that like you can go from being a normal human to a normal human who does this thing that should kill you there's no magic to it but it's it's fascinating. Yeah, that's uh, so. The, what was what was fascinating about that one in particular to you? The, when I came across this was in college, and I was a swimmer, and I probably swam five miles every day, um, which, if you're not a swimmer, seems like an impossible amount. But if you're a freshman going into high school and you're in just like not terrible shape, by the end of the year you could do that, right? So there wasn't that kind of arc of like impossible to possible. So, and I had looked at so many workouts written out because that's what I did every day, look at a workout on a board. But seeing it not geared toward, you will get incrementally better at the thing that you do, which was always the way I had thought about athletic accomplishment. Like we, I do this thing and I try and get incrementally better at it. Whereas the allure, I think, of a marathon is this is something that should be impossible and this is how you get to the point where you can do it. And yeah, I mean, it, there was nothing interesting about it, right? It was just <laughs> dates and lengths okay. of running. But the, just knowing that at the end was a marathon was enough for me to be like, well, how would I do this? Well, that seems like a big jump there. Or you should start more aggressively and not try and ramp up as much. All kinds of thoughts like that.
All right, for quick hits today, uh, we both worked a fair amount in the food industry. I want to do uh, kind of a buy sell hold on some food trends. We got I got three, uh, uh, you know, up and coming things and three things that are kind of going away. So start off with uh, meal delivery. So like things like Blue Apron and things where they deliver either you know ingredients or kind of fully you know frozen meals to your door. Think it's growing up down buy sell. So buy the subscription model is. Just they're going to find more and more things to get you subscribed to. This does not particularly appeal to me. I don't think that these are super cool. I don't think that they'll ever, you know, replace the supermarket, right? But I think that the subscription model just works, right? Once you have a credit card, you don't cancel that credit card. Once you start Netflix, there are very few people who turn Netflix on and off besides you. Um, but I, I think that these meal delivery, there's a reason everything they want you to subscribe to now. And meal delivery is just the latest version of that. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think meal delivery as a, a system will continue to grow. Um, I have not done any of them because I think there, there's a bunch of iteration that needs to happen. We talked about this in like business ideas in the past, but, um, you said it will never replace the supermarket. Uh, it can. It, there's no reason a, a virtual reality supermarket can't exist. There's no reason a uh, virtual reality restaurant where it's you know it's Olive Garden's whatever you know pasta dish and you can buy that and they deliver all the ingredients to your house. There's no reason these things can't exist online currently. The, these things could exist now. So for me, it's about uh, if I was an investor, I would never invest in Blue Apron, even though they're growing incredibly, because a supermarket could create a better version. Very, very quickly. Um, so, yeah. So we'll, we'll Listen back to the first podcast, and I'll, I'll link to it. But TJ has talked about this a little bit in the past. I think that uh, you're right. Technology is there to make this better. I don't know when or how or if that's going to happen. I thought the AR, uh, augmented reality thing, was so cool when Google Glass came out. And I was like, people are going to do this a lot. And they kept not doing it and not doing it. And now Pokemon Go is the biggest thing in the world. I, I feel like, yeah, I could see it happening, but I don't feel like it's, it has to happen. Fair enough. All right. Uh, number two, something that's going down, pasta. Both pasta restaurants, Italian restaurants, and uh, pasta sales have seen a, a fairly significant decrease, uh, both in more, actually more in Europe than in America. But um, whether it's, you know, carbs, gluten, whatever the cause may be, uh, do you think this is, is this kind of a wave or does this, does this kind of trend stay? I can't really speak to the European market, but it's funny. We, when you are not an idiot and you see things that are like popular fictions that the community believes but just aren't true, it's easy to think that people never get smarter but I think this is something that the society as a whole got smarter about what carbohydrates mean for your fitness. I don't subscribe to an Atkins or a paleo diet necessarily, but I don't think that even my parents or any of the people at my school who taught about nutrition had any... They didn't suspect that the food pyramid was a really dumb idea that was subsidized by cereal companies and a bunch of people who were lying to us on purpose. 
Um, so I think that there's good reason to, to believe that this trend, the death of pasta, keeps going. But I think you also hit on another piece that it's not just that there's like some fad diet or that diets are getting better, but there, it's also the gluten-free piece and it's also just a general change in what people see as desirable. Yeah, I, I, you went political in subsidization, but it is, it's real. It is a big piece of it, but um, no, yeah, I, I think I think the trend here is actually just um, was the internet or what caused it. Just people are more informed about nutrition, right? Access to nutrition information is more accessible. People grow up um, knowing more about nutrition than they ever used to. So the more you know about nutrition, the less pasta you're going to eat, right? It's well it's not like pasta is the worst thing, but you're right. No, we we kind of know now that what's bad about it. Yeah, it's not great. So yeah, I, I think I agree. I think there'll be a leveling out. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be as sharp as it is right now. But yeah, th- th- there definitely seems like a, a piece to that. All right, number three. It kind of goes back to this. Uh, I, I call it clean ingredients, but um, you know, not having ribodextrin or whatever it may be on an ingredient. There's a lot of restaurants and food companies trying to get to uh, the simplest. Whether that's the um, what's the CrossFit diet, <laughs> paleo, paleo, right? Which is all ingredients you can read, ingredients you can understand, and not having a science-backed food. Mm-hmm. Does this stay? Does this change? What is what happens here? Uh, this this is the first of these where I think maybe this doesn't have legs. So my wife, for example, very much thinks this way and would rather eat food that's like food and has pronounceable names, but. With the recent Pepsi decision to go back to aspartame and the level to which they lost so many millions of dollars by trying to go to quote-unquote natural ingredients, and that's another political thing you can get into is how the FDA defines what's natural and what's not. But I, I think there is a good, there's a rational health argument to be made here, just like there was with pasta, but I think that people are a little bit less susceptible to this because I think that between when it's clean ingredients against convenience, it's going to be hard for convenience to win. And I've worked at a lot of smaller health brands and I've worked at natural food companies. So my peer group, the people I think about really do care about this. And I, to a greater or lesser extent, also care about clean ingredients. But I think if there's anything that's could hit a bottom or completely turn around. This, I think, could turn around more than the carbohydrates pasta thing. Yeah, I agree that this is the most complicated one, probably of all the ones, including the ones we have coming up. Um, But it's probably the one I'm most passionate about. And it's because uh, rules of thumb are incredibly important to our lives, right? We need rules of thumb to just make things easier and not stress Mm -hmm. it. We can't research every ingredient on every label. I get that. Um, so defaulting to, I only want to eat things that have that. Awesome. Great. That doesn't mean the stuff that you can't pronounce is bad for you or potentially not better. Right. Um, so rules of thumb are important. Uh, this is the GMO argument, like in a nutshell, right? Mm -hmm. So people think, um, genetically modified ingredients are bad because they're genetically modified. Some genetically modified things are better than what they, the predecessors are now it's very, very difficult and scientific to get into which ones are which and why. So a rule of thumb is fine. If you want to say, I, you know, I prefer not GMO to GMO, I get that. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't legislate that and you can't 
do certain things because there are certain ones that are better. Same with... But come back to clean ingredients. Certain ingredients you can't pronounce you've never heard of uh-huh. are better. Ah. I personally believe aspartame is better than you know, the, the sugar, right? Sugar. Just real yeah. sugar. Personal belief, you can believe, you know, do the research and kind of think whatever you want. Does that make... It's, it's strange to me that um, society is almost shaming companies into... Uh, encouraging them to have cleaner ingredients when some of the not the, some of the scientific ingredients like we're we're pumping protein into cereal right now we're yeah. doing some weird stuff with grains and some weird stuff with proteins mm-hmm. some of those are good we're yeah. put we put vitamins in water we fluoride into water like we do this stuff because it's better for the society and for the group even if you can't pronounce fluoride mm. you think of this in a category of things that i don't necessarily like I feel much more comfortable saying like, oh yeah, I'm pro-GMO than I do saying like, yeah, all these ingredients that your grandmother would not have heard of when she was our age, they're probably all right. Because I, I think the difference is those things, the, you know, whether it's the corn syrups or, or whatever, you know, the, the ways we're extracting sugars that aren't just sugar, a lot of the role that they're trying to play is to kind of juke the numbers on the nutritional label. So if you, as a rule of thumb, say, I avoid those, I think that rule is going to get you to healthier food more of the time. At the same time, I have to say, like, I don't practice that. I eat Cheetos, and I'm happy to, and I'm not going to stop. You know. Yeah, and we, we all, like I said, the rule, rules of thumb are important, and if you avoid ingredients you don't know, you, you won't get into trouble. Just like if you, you never drive, you won't get in a car accident. That's yeah. fine, right? <laughs> like, but you might have somewhere to go. <laughs> the, there's, yeah, the, like, if, you know, there are things that are, you know, will help you, like a car. <laughs> or, you know, if, I don't like to fly because there could be a car accident. If you want to drive across the country, that's fine. That's your choice. There are some planes out there. So one of the things we talked about when we went to number four uh, you know, pumping protein into cereal. Cereal market sales have been falling apart for a long time. People moving to more protein-based uh, breakfast or just not eating breakfast at all. Mm-hmm. So cereal companies are, Kellogg's, or if it was, no, GM, General Mills, Kellogg's released their first, uh, the Tiny Toast, first new cereal in 15 years. Mm. They're, they're putting uh, protein into a lot of their grain-based cereals. Does cereal come back or is it, is it kind of a flattening out or does it buy, sell, hold on cereal? Uh it seems like you'd be an idiot to keep betting on cereal when it keeps shrinking and shrinking. And there's, there's not that much for me to say about this that we didn't already say about pasta. Like it's kind of suffering the same fate of the people trying to avoid carbs, people trying to avoid gluten, yada, yada. But uh, to me, if there's any hope for cereal, it's that at some point there's a bottom. There's just like a diehard group of people who... They like to have cereal for breakfast, and they are going to like to have cereal for breakfast no matter what. In the same way that, you know, there are, I could see cereal, like, having a records-like resurgence at some point where, yeah, there are things that we maybe think are better for us or whatever, but people have a nostalgia for it, or people feel like it's cool, or there's some ineffable reason why people like cereal um, that's uh, that's kind of a uh, i don't know if that's a great metaphor or not i just kind of reach for it but i could see in the way that like cereal will never regain the heights that it once had but it 
at some point it's got to hit a bottom and maybe there's a little bit of a bounce on that bottom. But I, I'll say hold, but I don't feel great about it. Sure. That, that's, that's interesting because you like the nostalgia piece is the driver. So, yeah, 100% agree. Grains in general, I, I don't see buying. They might flatten out soon. What's interesting to me is, A, the market's ripe for some sort of a breakfast bar. Um, I remember what was, what was the one that, that came out not that long ago that uh, whatever. But this has been but, tried. People have their breakfast bars. They... Yeah, I mean, but yeah, but I guess my point is, we know the health benefits of breakfast. Uh-huh. We know uh, kids especially need to eat it. They need certain, mm-hmm. you know, it's better for them to have certain protein. So, uh, breakfast as a meal, I could see having a, a, a tremendous resurgence. Uh, I don't know if cereal is the right vessel to do that. The one caveat I'll put at that is, we're stemming towards a point where um, social. Uh, uh, networking between a family mm-hmm. is bottoming out. I, I think there has to be a swing back a little bit where, um, right, families, whether it's technology or whatever the purpose is, is, is the, fam- the nuclear family is disintegrating. Uh, I, I am an optimist, and I see that having a resurgence. And if that means scheduled family meals around a table, then cereal could have a resurgence just due to a social pressure to bring back the nuclear family. So hold. Too meta. I would sell cereal as a food. I buy breakfast as a meal. Yeah, I I think I think that buy breakfast is probably right, and but I want to push back on we know the health benefits of breakfast. I have seen research that says you need X number of calories a day, and that's it. And if you get it in two tiny snacks and a big meal, or you fast until two. No problem. They, you have, you'll have less energy if you haven't eaten, but in terms of like long-term health outcomes, what matters is the amount over a day and not when you eat it. That's interesting. I mean, I, you'll have to link it in the, in the show notes or research something out because it's definitely all, most of the stuff I've read is like test performance, memory performance. Uh, we talked about this in the decision fatigue episode, the uh, marshmallow test. Mm-hmm. They did the marshmallow test with people who had eaten and not eaten. Yeah. And uh, your your ability to make the right long term decision for short term decisions is dramatically affected by your sugar intake and your, your whether you're hungry or not essentially. Yeah, well, you're hungry for a marshmallow. <laughs> no, this is this is a hot topic. But to take it political once more, big cereal they they've been they've had their thumb on the scale for many a year, man. Absolutely, no, they had the biggest ones. All right, moving on to number five. This goes the counter to the clean ingredients piece. Uh, probiotics, right? We're seeing them pop up in cereal and yogurt and drinks and uh, kombucha and all this sort of, you right, the probiotic type foods and drinks. Not a clean ingredient, most of them. Uh, most of them you can't understand, let alone pronounce. Uh, do, you, do you consume probiotics or do you see, see just them out? Do you see this trend holding, staying? I To me, it's it's not something that I've ever read about, but it makes all the sense in the world to me that, you know, we... We have such a we had such an antiseptic culture, and we're always trying to clean things. That kind of going backwards and saying, "How do we dirty ourselves up by eating the good bacteria or whatever?" As far as how big it is going to grow, I feel like this one has already crested. Like the the biggest I ever thought probiotics were was when Jamie Lee Curtis was in commercials talking to me about it all the time, and I sometimes saw these in like 
the women's magazines that Nia gets. But I, I feel like the noise around them is going away. That might just be that one brand. Yeah, I agree in that it, usually for something, a trend to really, really take hold, it needs a, uh, a, a true impact. Like breakfast, breakfast helps memory. Probiotic does this. Probiotics aren't necessarily a like they solve cancer. They solve yeah. this, right? They're they're just kind of a general kind of make you feel better type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not like vitamin C that prevents colds. Like there isn't a true. Uh, it's better digestive health and you poop better, right? Like there's mm-hmm. there's some some basic stuff, but there's nothing like dramatic. Uh, I'm a huge probiotic defender and promoter and think they're one of the greatest things. And, and to go back to your your antiseptic piece, and that's the biggest thing. Um, you know. Whenever, if you took amoxicillin as a kid, mm-hmm. right, they killed. So uh, bacteria outnumber the cells in your body nine to one. There's nine. There's nine bacteria for every or for one cell or whatever the number is. Mm-hmm. It's around that. Uh, when you take something like amoxicillin, it carpet bombs your entire gut flora, mm-hmm. just destroys the good and the bad. Yep. Unfortunately, so replenishing the good bacteria is incredibly, incredibly important. That's what helps you digest stuff. That's what. All that sort of stuff comes from. I, do you believe in the health benefit? Do you believe in the trend? Is it going to keep growing? Yeah, I, I, I do. In the same way, like I'm kind of anti-clean ingredients. Uh, there are some things you can't pronounce that are really, really good for you. And as we co- become more informed as a society about nutrition, and um, maybe there is something, you know, that people that ingest probiotics on a daily basis, you know, suffer, you know, 50% less incidence of whatever, Thanks. right? Um I think I think it's gonna take some sort of weird article, news, medical mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. report to really, really drive that. But you see, I mean, I was at the grocery store today. I saw um, chia seeds with probiotics, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's, it, we talk about like two health trends just converging into a, a weird, weird kind of thing. But Voltron. yeah, yeah, Voltron of health foods. All right, uh, last. So tentative buy for you? A huge, huge buy personally. Uh, yeah, because I think there has to be a medical report that, that some, someone's got to figure something out eventually. Mm. I say sell. I say that this is peaked. Right. Not that it's going to go away entirely, but you'll hear less and less about it. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, last one. Something's uh, going away. Will it keep going away? Tipping. Restaurant tipping in general. Ubers. You see this in Ubers. You see this in Ubers, yeah. But a lot of restaurants are uh, you know, either including tipping in the check or outlawing it altogether, or not allowing you to all these sort of things, and there's there's good and bad backlashes uh, to both of these. I love this as a policy. Uh, I saw some Reddit chat about it, and someone had made this great Google spreadsheet of all the no tip restaurants in the city. I think it's a much more humane way to treat servers to say you always get the same amount of money and you can depend on that. And if you happen to be working the tables of the cheapskates, you don't do worse than if you weren't. Uh, Tipping was invented to cheat workers out of a living wage. That's why they did it. It it started on the trains and it it has a nefarious uh, past. And as as a customer, I like it too because it takes the thinking out of it it just this is how much the meal costs and to me it's more honest to say this costs ten dollars than this costs eight dollars but you it's understood that we'll add two dollars to it at the end um so i i definitely like it 
I don't know how big this will ever get because I think it's a subtle point. It's something that people, it's not enough to make you go to one restaurant over another most of the time. So I, I, I don't think I'm buying on this. I, I, I think I'm probably selling or holding. Yeah, I, I think I'm buying on it, just not in the iteration it's currently in. Because obviously the, the big issue with it is servers in no-tip restaurants are leaving. That, that's, that's the big why restaurants are afraid to do it. How could that be? Because what what's a big part of the no tipping thing is if if it's include first of all there's two parts if they're including it in the price of the food so there's a zero uh-huh. tip versus here's a food and it's a flat tip rate uh-huh. I'm much more in favor of the flat tip rate versus the just raising your prices by a dollar or whatever the uh-huh. that sort of piece the second piece is that tip uh, if it's included is going to the chefs as well as the servers. So in total, the servers are getting less. They're essentially getting an out. Mo- a lot of times, especially at these fast, quick serve, uh, in and out type restaurants. This is an interesting thing you say because I, I that sounds anecdotal. Because if you've worked in the service industry, right, there are places where you tip out chefs or you tip out door guys or you sure. tip out, and there are places where you don't. You know, so some bouncers don't get tipped, some bouncers do get tipped, things like that. Um, but there's no reason that you have to get paid less as a waiter if there's flat tip. You say sell, do you like it or dislike it? So I actually I think I actually buy it as a concept. It's gonna be hard to implement. I think it has to start actually uh, from the bottom as compared to from the top, right? So a lot of the famous no tipping restaurants are some sort of high end places. And if you're a server at one of those, that's not great for you a lot of the time. That could be huge money. That could be huge, huge money. And, um, you know, if, as, you know, because if there's no tipping, generally you're going to get paid the same as everyone else, and you might think you're better than everyone else. Or you think, you know, you, you know, even if you're not making less money, your incentive to work hard and your incentive to uh, make sure the customer is delighted I got you. The old is anti-communism. The old anti, anti-communism <laughs> argument that, that Republicans will bring up all the time. We need to incentivize people to give good service. Yeah. And you actually do hear res, the no-tipping restaurants. People all complain about how terrible the service was, which might just be BS rhetoric, but, like, they're out. The stories are out there. I, you, you just send me these links because I, I, I feel like – and maybe I just live in an imaginary land and maybe I just – I, I have confirmation bias and I only hear the stories I like. But I, I, I would imagine that you could get a very collegial atmosphere at a restaurant and feel more taken care of by your employer um, if your employer said, look, you're going to be making 30 grand all year long, not you're going to be making 15 grand for the first half of the year, but then it's going to go up, but then it's going to go down. Uh, a, people, a lot of people, risk is something that's very scary to many folks, and there's good reason for that. So, I'm I'm surprised to hear you to to hear you say that waiters don't like it. And again, if the service is bad, it would make sense that customers don't like it. But I even that is a surprise to me, and I would imagine that customers would generally like not having the stress of it absolutely so yeah uh yeah and i don't know if it's, I, I would actually buy it because i think if you're opening a new restaurant great do it mm. it's really hard to switch from a tipping restaurant to a not tipping one mm. um the same way wherever that company uh that was i think it was the tom shoes guy that 
uh, took all of his employees to a flat uh, a flat salary. You know, it was the the weird PayPal oh, money yeah, transfer yeah. company. It's like everyone makes the same money, and it disincentivizes a lot of people, and you had a lot of people leave. Yeah. Same way, same way. If you are hiring for that, you might bring people who are looking for stability and those sort of thing. I think it'll work just fine. If you're trying to take your current restaurant from a tipping restaurant to a no tipping restaurant, you're gonna piss off half the people essentially. Yeah, I that that I can absolutely see. Yeah, there's a there's a great um, interview that Ezra Klein does with one of the hot hot restaurateurs in DC, and they talk about this. They he he's trying it at one of his restaurants, but he talks about how you know the how it's it's hard to do. It's hard to charge enough. Um, and it's also like that trick lying to your customers works, you know, like they might say they want the honest price and they want you to say this costs $20 and not 16. But, uh, when they look at the menu and everything costs 20% more than they think it should, I'm sure that that creates some friction. So, so I say, I don't know, I guess I say hold. Yeah, um, I'm trying to look up who that chef was. But, yeah, he was also on the Bill Simmons one uh, interview as well. Oh, Danny I know. Chow, maybe? Danny Chow, yeah, yeah. Um, he does a bunch of those restaurants and has a bunch in L.A. and whatever. But, yeah, because he, he – the interesting thing for him was it was depend on the size of the restaurant. I'm trying to remember which – which like, a certain, above a certain size, you need – you can get rid of it. Below it, you can't. Or maybe it was the opposite. But we'll, we'll – I'll link to – I'll link to it in the show notes. Cool. Well, I think that does it for us. That's David Chang. There we go. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. Share the podcast on your social media and also write us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show. If you go to the website, workfriendspodcast.com, you will find an Amazon affiliate uh, link. If you click on that link, anything you buy through Amazon, we get a little taste of. It doesn't affect your price. Uh, no, no money comes out of your pocket. It's just a nice way for you to thank us if you like the podcast. That's something we would appreciate. And the money comes from uh, Jeff Bezos's pocket and not yours. Uh, have a great week. Thanks, guys.